Hello and welcome to the Talk Never to Me podcast. On this episode, we release Professor Carrick's discussion on cerebellum and eye movements from the Carrick Institute Vault. In this episode, Professor Carrick discusses the role of the cerebellum in eye movements and discusses the consequences of specific lesions in the cerebellum on pursuits, saccades, and gaze holding. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, good people. We're going to continue talking about eye movements in a clinical vein, and we're going to be talking particularly uh, about what the cerebellum does with individual eye movements. Most of you are familiar with the vestibulo-ocular responses and different types of ataxias that are seen in cerebellar disorders. We're familiar with the limbic cerebellum, if you would, or that uh, flocculonodular vermal projections to uh, the areas of the brain that are associated with different emotional aspects, the dysmetria of thought. But we also need to look at the motor localization in the cerebellum that will assist us when we look at the ataxic patients. We know that when it comes to eye movements, the cerebellum is very, very pivotal in its neurological regulation. It's very, very important, and we need to know uh, a lot about it clinically, and we know a fair bit about it from a variety of research studies. The cerebellum basically functions to optimize the ocular motor performance. And when we say optimize, it really uh, really allows us to realize that the cerebellum is the structure that allows the, the fovea of the eye to grab the object of interest. So it's going to put the fovea on the target. Without the cerebellum, it's just not going to work that way. So visual acuity is best when things hit the fovea, and you've got to keep the fovea in line with the target in order to have the time for your brain to be able to analyze and interpret the visual scene to decide what you're going to do, what does it mean, and a variety of those uh, those sorts of things. So the cerebellum has both an immediate uh, online function so that acute lesions that, that occur there, such as strokes or infarcts, can produce really super, super abnormalities right away. You're going to be able to see them. But we also find that there is a long-term adaptive functionality in the cerebellum, and this functionality leads to, oh, basically um, a new a new state of the environment or an inability to repair uh, disturbances of eye movement and abnormalities that would reflect inappropriate or maladaptive types of functioning. So let's look at the the cerebellum that we love, if you would, and look at it uh, from the, from a clinical point of view. And the areas within the cerebellum that people know the most about are the uh, the flocculus, the paraflocculus or tonsils, the nodulus uh, or ventral uvula, which is lobules nine and ten of the cerebellar uh, vermis, also the dorsal ocular motor vermis, which are lobules 5 to 7, and then its target in the posterior vestigial nucleus, which is referred to as the vestigial ocular motor region, the FOR. We like these OR things. The VOR is the vestibular ocular response, and the vestigial ocular motor region, FOR, this is an area that many of you have diagrammed in your classes. Now, when we look at the schematics that people use when we're trying to understand our clinical aspects of the cerebellum. We have to realize that uh, most of this data is is 
is gotten not from humans but from other animals, uh, cats and, and, of course, monkeys or primates. So we have to not take it with a pinch of salt but realize that a lot of the work that is done that we use to interpret the reality of our patients is not done on on human beings. Some cerebellar eye signs uh, don't really fit that whole animal model, but the the majority of them do, or the, the types of lesions that you see in uh, patients, especially those with diffuse degenerative cerebellar uh, disease. Well, we know that the Purkinje cells are going to inhibit output uh, to uh, different targets from the cerebellar uh, efferent projections. And Purkinje cells are related to eye movements in the vestibulocerebellum, that is to say the flocculus, the paraflocculus, and the uvula and the nodulus. And these Purkinje cells project to the deep nuclei of the cerebellum and directly to the vestibular nucleus, which is really from a clinical standpoint, the vestibular nuclei are really cerebellar nuclei. They just sort of been displaced. They're out of the cerebellum and and they're in the brainstem. And I think that if you look at that vestibular nucleus as a Oh, as a cousin that moved away, but is still in direct contact and direct function, it makes things a little bit easier. But what about the cerebellar tonsil, the flocculus, the the para the paraflocculus? Well, you know those tonsils can be embedded uh, down in the foramen magnum when you've got coning in that, but when they're not, we use this flocculus paraflocculus in pursuit uh, mechanisms and other mechanisms. So let's talk about. The things that you're going to see with lesions in this area of the cerebellum, the flocculus and the paraflocculus, you're not going to be able to lock your eyes on a target and follow it so that you're going to have a problem with smooth tracking. It's going to be impaired. And this can, of course, happen when the head is still. And if the head is still, it really is smooth pursuit, yes? But if the head is moving, then we have to look at the abilities of the eyes to move while canceling out the vestibulo-ocular response. Every time you move your head, you evoke a vestibulo-ocular response, and that can uh, assist with tracking or it can can hinder it. So uh, we look at smooth pursuit both with the head still uh, or with VOR cancellation. Both the initiation of a pursuit and the response during the tracking that is sustained uh, on the target. These are the things that we look at with a patient, follow my finger from right to left. Uh, we're going to find that these things can be affected with lesions of the, the cerebellar tonsil. So complete lesions of the flocculus, paraflocculus, can lead to a considerably decreased steady state gain, which is really the, the relationship of the eye velocity to the target velocity in regards to pursuit. And there's a considerable recovery of the function of pursuits even when you've got complete lesions in the flocculonodular area, which implicates that there is other areas of the brain that also are associated with the control of pursuit mechanisms. When we look at people that have psychotic episodes or their limbic cerebellum is going, they're also not going to be able to track so very, very well. So clinically, when you look at somebody who's got a little problem following your finger, uh, they're not being able to keep up, up with it, they've got a latency, you want to ask some very careful questions about depression or, or different types of behavioral changes that can... Uh, 
that can occur. Well, when we look at the flocculus paraflocculus, <clears throat> it's also involved in being able to hold a gaze, and this is very, very uh, important to be able to hold a gaze, and the gaze is being uh, being able to be held after you move to an individual target. For instance, uh, after you've had uh, uh, ex uh, eccentric horizontal eye movements, the eyes are going to drift centripetally. That is a real big important deal for us to to be able to understand that we're going to have these these individual drifts of the eyes. Now, what happens is is that that flocculus paraflocculus is really going to impact, it's going to integrate and control the circuitry in the brain stem that converts the velocity into positional commands for all types of conjugate eye movements and and this also is going to permit a fixation of the eyes itself. So Let's let's look at uh, eccentric gaze. If you're looking either to the right or you're looking to the left or up or down, and after you've done that for a period of time, when you return to the straight-ahead position, individuals that have this flocular-paraflocular lesions are going to show a uh, a transient rebound. It's going to take you know a few seconds, but this rebound nystagmus. So you're going to look to one side, and then when you come back, boom, boom, you get this little bit of a nystagmus, and you get the slow phases directed in the prior direction of the eccentric gaze holding. So if I'm looking to the right side, and I've got a, a flocculus paraflocular lesion, and I hold that gaze for a period of time, I come back to the neutral, boom, 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 I get a rebound nystagmus with the uh, slow phase directed to the right side that I was looking at before. So the fast phase is looking at the side from which, um, uh, to, to which you've come back to the neutral. So what happens is, is that when we look at flocular paraflocular areas, you also find that when you have lesions in there, the classic sign that you're going to see is a downbeat nystagmus. And in the downbeat nystagmus, really, the eyes are going to drift up. That's the slow phase. And they're brought back down to the fixation target by a corrective downward saccade. And the saccade, of course, is the quick phase of the nystagmus. Now, if you have the patient that has a downbeat nystagmus that has a lesion in their cerebellar flocculus, paraflocculus, then this nystagmus is accentuated on lateral gaze and with convergence so that you're going to be able to bring it out. It's usually more intense when you look down. So that nystagmus itself arises uh, probably from a loss of inhibition of the Purkinje cells in the flocculus uh, upon the individual pathways within the brainstem itself that mediate these upward slow phases, which of course are the vestibular systems, the pursuit or the gaze holding types of uh, network. We also know that when you've got lesions in these midline uh, cerebellar structures of the, floc uh, the flocular, paraflocular uh, areas, <clears throat> you, you can expect to see a brief, <clears throat> excuse me, a brief uh, drift of the eyes, and that drift of the eyes can last, oh boy, uh, several hundred milliseconds after you do a saccade. So you do a saccade to a target, then you get a drift of the eyes, and that post-saccadic drift reflects a mismatch between the pulse and step 
of the innervation for saccades. And the pulse is the phasic aspect. The step is the tonic aspect. You remember these uh, phasic tonic pulse step things that you can read in Kendall and Swartz. And, and the reason that you have this post-saccadic drift because of this mismatch is due to the abnormal amplitude of the step output of the neural integrator relative to the input velocity and uh, of the pulse. So normally, the two premotor signals are matched exactly right, so the eye abruptly stops at the end of a saccade, and it doesn't keep on drifting. But if there's a mismatch, then they're going to drift, and that's what you see with these midline cerebellar types of lesions. Now, when you look at monkeys that have lesions of the flocculus paraflocculus, the direction of the post-saccadic drift uh, onward or backward is variable from uh, one monkey to another monkey uh, so that the modulating role of the cerebellum upon these individual circuitries is very, very individual. The key thing is is that the you expect to see this drift afterwards if you have a mismatch, and this occurs with these midline cerebellar areas. Well, the vestibular system, we love it. People are very, very keen on it. Um, what do we see? We know that this flocculus and paraflocculus are intimately related to eye movements, but guess guess what? You know, they project in this vestibular system, but they are not critical for the vestibulo-ocular response. You'd think it would be, but it's not critical. Uh, so when we look at that VOR in response to head rotations, and that is in the sense that the the vestibulo-ocular response that occurs when you rotate your head is still present in uh, in animals, that have lesions of the flocculus or paraflocculus, and it's still present even after complete ablation of the cerebellum itself. So we know that there's pathways from that labyrinthine system that go to the target cells uh, as well as in the cerebellum. So really what happens, the amplitude uh, can be normal, it can be increased, or it can be uh, decreased, or it can be misdirected. Or In other words, what happens when you have lesions in that... Um, paraflocular area in the flocculus or, or paraflocculus, then what you see is that the axis of eye rotation, head rotation becomes a little bit jumbled or misaligned so that uh, it can be misdirected or, you know, all over the place. And what happens is, is that if you if you're examining your patient and you do a rapid horizontal head impulse you're going to take your head and you move it rapidly and see what's happening with the eyes then you're going to see that the response if it is exaggerated it's too big or if it's too little then you're going to have an inappropriate component of of movement that's what you're going to see when we look at the nodulus or the uvula when we look at those vestibular responses we find that the uh, the ventral uh, portion of the uvula and the nodulus acts upon the low-frequency components of the vestibulo-ocular response, and it does this by projecting to a storage mechanism, a velocity storage mechanism within the vestibular a nuclei itself. So let's say you have a patient and you have a, a rotation of the head at a constantly maintained uh, velocity. Then we're going to have this velocity storage mechanism that will extend the entire time of this vestibulo-ocular response beyond 
the time that would be expected simply from the mechanical properties in the uh, cupula endolymph uh, system or that semicircular type of uh, phenomena. So we find that we have a perseverating action that is going to maintain the nystagmus or at least slow the decay of nystagmus during a constant velocity rotation in the dark. And what that does is it improves the performance of the VOR at low frequencies of, ro of uh, rotation. Now, when we look at damage in the nodulus, such as a lesion in the nodulus itself, then that mechanism that improves the VOR performance is disinhibited and it results in an increase in the duration of the vestibular responses to a constant velocity input so that basically the VOR time constant is increased. So we look at this velocity storage mechanism. Just review that in, in Kendall and Swartz if you have a problem with it. It's pretty simple. But that velocity storage mechanism is a modulator when it looks at the direction of the compensatory uh, slow phases, reorientating the axis of the eye rotation relative to the axis of the head rotation. So when we have lesions in the nodulus, this is really going to result in uh, slow phases that are inappropriately directed, but only in relationship to slow uh, rotations so that when we look at um, the VOR impulses it's going to uh, be different when they're slow. Now we have something referred to as a periodic alternating nystagmus or PAN and this is a horizontal jerk nystagmus but it it changes direction every few minutes and those of you that took the vestibular rehab program know that we talk about that in great detail about PAN. So you have nystagmus but it changes direction every few minutes and what you see with PAN, this periodic alternating nystagmus is that it can appear following lesions of the nodules. It's a classic board question. So that pan reflects the combined actions of a, a disinhibited brainstem vestibular velocity storage mechanism. Why? Because you've lost that inhibition of the Purkinje cells in the nodulus that are going to project to the vestibular nuclei. And the other thing they're going to do is that the pan is going to reflect an intact adaptive mechanism that is going to act to get rid of any uh, sustained unidirectional nystagmus, and that's going to allow the nystagmus direction, of course, to change. And that's very, very important. Well, what about Purkinje cell inhibition? You people know this very, very well in the surround type of inhibition. It's mediated through GABA-B receptors <clears throat> so that if you have a person that is given uh, baclofen, which is a GABA-B agonist, it's going to disengage that velocity storage mechanism and it's going to stop the periodic alternating nystagmus. So uh, the pharmacology of that should be well known and people that have PAN are probably going to be taking baclofen and then uh, we can go on and on from there at a different time talking about what other things that can do. But what about uh, some other ocular motor uh, functions in the nodulus and in the uvula? We know that if you have lesions there, uh, you're going to again get, what do you think, downbeat nystagmus in the dark. But that downbeat nystagmus has a positional component. It is um, a nystagmus that you can get rid of if you're staring at something. So it's suppressed by fixation, but it's unaffected by the position of the eye in the, in the orbit itself. So uh, basically it has a vestibular 
bias. You know that the eyes will move in the planes of the canals, etc. So um, it, it, it's pretty interesting because both the flocculonodular paraflocular lesions and nodular and uvular lesions both cause downbeat nystagmus. But here's a clinical gem for you. The downbeat nystagmus that you see in the flocculonodular paraflocular uh, lesion model is not suppressed by fixation and its intensity is modulated with vertical and horizontal uh, eye movement. So this reflects abnormalities in vertical gaze holding uh, networks. So the the downbeat nystagmus in in uh, nodular and uvular uh, lesions is different because that downbeat nystagmus is suppressed by f- uh, fixation and it's not affected by moving the eye in, in any other direction. So it tells you little wee things that you can do to compare that type of downbeat nystagmus. The first thing, hey, can you attenuate it with fixation? If you can, then if it is cerebellar, it's probably nodular or uvular. If you can't, it's probably flocular or paraflocular. And this has some clinical importance that we'll talk about in great detail uh, throughout the podcasts uh, that we'll do you know, throughout the individual uh, year. Well, what about lobules 5 to 7? Uh, this, of course, is the dorsal vermis. And the dorsal vermis and the vestigial nucleus are intimately related. And they're intimately related uh, specifically when we look at uh, psychotic activity. So far, we're talking about those little midline areas uh, that are down with the nodules, the tonsils, and, and that. Now we're talking, and, and I'm sort of talking about uh, pursuit mechanisms. Now we're talking about faster eye movements. And the role of the cerebellum in the control of saccades is uh, is fairly complex, and, and we need to talk about that, so we'll, we'll continue on with it. But basically, what we can say is that when we look at the vestigial nucleus, if you've got a problem in there, this is going to lead to overshooting of saccades toward the side of the lesion. So that's very important. A vestigial nuclear lesion is going to be resulting with saccades that are going to overshoot uh, their mark. They're going to be hypermetric, and it's going to do it. So if you have a lesion in your in your vestigium uh, uh, on the right side, you'll be hypermetric when you look to the right very, very uh, quickly. Now, when you look at lesions of the dorsal vermis, either the, you know, the oculomotor uh, vermis, this is going to produce undershooting of saccades towards the side of the lesion. So fastigium, hypermetria to that same side, uh, dorsal vermis, it's going to be hypometric to the same side. So a right cerebellar lesion can result in hypermetria uh, to the right or hypometria depending on whether the fastigial nucleus or the dorsal vermis is actually involved. Now, if you've got uh, lesions in both of your vestigial nuclei on the right and the left the side of the cerebellum, these bilateral lesions of the vestigium will produce hypermetric saccades, in some cases macrosaccadic oscillations, which are saccades that are going to overshoot the target all over the place, leading to fixation uh, instability. Bilateral vermal lesions, on the other hand, 
are going to produce saccadic hypometria. When we look at pursuit, like saccades, of course, there's there's evidence that the um, ocular motor vermis and the fastigium are going to participate in the direction of these uh, pursuit eye movements, and they do it in a way that I think you know most of you are pretty uh, pretty well uh, pretty well aware of or versed in. We have an area called the fastigial uh, ocular motor region the vestigial ocular motor region. And this, of course, is very, very important in eye fixations and being able to hold on a target. So that, that vestigial ocular motor region and the ocular motor vermis are going to participate in these directions such that if you've got a problem with the uh, vestigial ocular motor uh, region, then contralateral pursuit is impaired. And bilateral uh, FOR lesions don't lead to striking changes in tracking that is sustained, uh, but bilateral lesions of the ocular motor vermis are going to produce bilateral pursuit deficits. So listen to this over and over again. Just let it become you know, part of your armamentarium so that you understand it. We also know that uh, we've got two eyes and you need to control both of the eyes moving together. And, and of course the cerebellum is, is integral in that type of coordination of, of movement. So we know that classically individuals that do have cerebellar uh, damage will oftentimes have a deviation of that uh, vertical alignment of the eyes or they'll have a, a skew deviation. And that skew deviation is something that you, you're going to find that their muscles are intact so that the skew deviation isn't due to a paresis of the muscle like a classic trochlear nerve lesion or an oculomotor lesion. You do your three-way test and see if that's happening. Those muscles are good, but that skew deviation you see with this um, vertical misalignment uh, can occur with patients with uh, cerebellar uh, damage. So what happens is, is that when the cerebellum isn't isn't working too well when it gets a little bit funky, that skew deviation or that vertical misalignment can change its sense with uh, the positioning of the eyes in the horizontal plane. So what are you going to see? More commonly, the abducting eye is higher, but occasionally the adducting eye will be higher. But usually it's the abducting eye. So I like when I'm looking at these these patients, I always like to look at that abducting eye, you know, that that uh, that sixth nerve eye in a, in a variety of different uh, conditions. But when there's a skew deviation, you're going to say, okay, these eyes are a little bit, you know, they're not aligned in the vertical plane. Look to the right, look to the left. And when you look uh, to the right, the right eye, of course, is going to abduct. When you look to the left, the left eye is going to abduct. Classically, uh, what you're going to see is this deviation when they're looking to that that individual uh, side. Now, why is this a clinical uh, gem? Well, if you find that the adducting eye is higher, that's pretty <laughs> that's pretty pretty hard to distinguish from a fourth nerve lesion because that superior oblique muscle is going to be very active in adduction and it causes depression. So that when you've got a lesion of that fourth nerve or fourth nerve type of palsy, a, a trochlear nerve palsy, then the eye is going to deviate upwards when you when you get to move it in. The third nerve is intact, but it's going to rise upwards and uh, because of the the integrity that you're going to see of the uh, 
of the uh, oblique muscle that's going to uh, bring it up, the inferior oblique muscle. So uh, when we look at the cerebellar abnormalities, we also find that these patients may have an esotropia, which is uh, you know, a little bit of a squint in which the eyes are going to turn inward. And this uh, can be attributed to a divergence paralysis because the esodeviation is usually greater when they're looking at things at, at a long distance. And we look at these individual accommodative spasms, and when you see them, we think of the otoliths that may be turned on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, when we look at caudal cerebellar lesions, what are you going to look at? Again, this nystagmus, a divergence beating nystagmus. We're going to have, obviously, convergent slow phases with divergent uh, quick phases. That's really, really important. Now, that is different than the type of phases that you see with the Whipple's disease, where the people have these, these gut problems, and you get these little rocking and rolling, you know, the, the eyes are, 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 are coming in and going out. They don't go past the midline. But these type of activities with caudal cerebellar lesions, you actually have the phases are different, a fast phase and a slow phase. It's a differentiation between Whipple's with caudal uh, cerebellar uh, lesions. We know that when we look at the uh, vestigial oculomotor uh, areas that uh, these are important in uh, convergence and if you got lesions of them you get convergence failure and of course lesions in the ocular motor vermis will produce an inward turning of the eyes and of course when we look at these things uh, we would look at uh, the cerebellum as being associated with an, an excess of convergence types of tone so hey that's a lot of stuff and I tell you when I look at people's eyes and people with cerebellar lesions or ataxias or things like that, I, I really can get a whole load of information. I get a lot of information in regards to the position of the head and yaw, pitch and roll, and I get a lot of information by looking at saccades and pursuits as to the individual functions. And then I get a, a therapy that's going to be more specific. For instance, would a vestibular type of therapy better be better in this person or would a peripheral proprioceptive type of therapy be better? Well, let's continue on and talk about that individual area when we look at the different uh, controls, if you would, of saccades and, and different things like that. I think it's just absolutely exciting. Okay, well, it's a heavy topic. Uh, thank you much for asking me to speak on it. And uh, listen to this a few times and then look at your patients and start thinking of that microarchitecture. If you're going to come to brain dissection, I'm going to show it uh, to you very, very functionally. And then I think you'll really, really grab it. So see if you can do that. It really is a great deal. Okay. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on carekinstitute.com.